And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So we're continuing on in our Old Testament study of the book of Nehemiah, as you can obviously tell uh, from the scripture reading. And we're going to basically spend between now and uh, just up to Palm Sunday, uh, about a month and a half, finishing out the book of Nehemiah. I'll get to more of that in a minute. It's going to be a great ride for us as a church. Next Sunday, I will be here, but I will be here to introduce a, a guest speaker that I'm very, very excited for you to hear from. His name is Oz Guinness. Uh, Oz is a, uh, from the UK. He's probably one of the foremost apologists, meaning a defender of the Christian faith uh, that's alive today. He's very, very bright. He has a doctor of philosophy from Oxford. He's written over 30 books. He's a really, really good speaker. I uh, heard him speak over in Europe a couple of times over the last few years. And uh, when I heard him speak last time, I invited him to come be with us because I want you all to hear from him. And he agreed to do that. Probably the most exciting thing about Oz to me is that his great, great 
great-great-grandfather was the founder of Guinness Brewing Company. And so <laughs> with credentials like that, I, I think he would fit in perfect here. So uh, please come next Sunday to hear Oz, and uh, I'll be here with you. And, and bring a friend, uh, and, and that would be good too, because I, I think if you've ever wanted to bring somebody to church but you don't want them to hear me, then next Sunday would be good, because Oz will be sure not to disappoint. Our cactus and, and uh, venue across campus are joining us right now for the teaching of the word. Uh, it's going to be kind of a challenging message for some of you here today. I'll just warn you. It starts off mild and we end on a rather challenging note. But I think challenge is sometimes very good for the soul. And so let's pray and then we're going to dive right in. Father, thank you for our time together here today where we can focus on you through singing and through being sung to, through being with each other. And I pray, God, that as hopefully our minds are a bit settled and our hearts a bit settled now to focus on your truth, that you would speak to us through your word, the Bible, and that, Lord, we would not be disappointed. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things you notice in looking around our Shea campus here is that we are starting to see some shape to the two new buildings that we are building. Look up here on the screen. Uh, for the first one is our, our chapel which I'm so excited about. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the kind of chapel, you can see it's starting to take shape there, that's a bit longer and more narrow than the one down the road on Shea. And, and so when we do weddings, I think I've joked with you guys before, the, the first wedding I did at our, our older chapel, because it's only six rows, they started playing the wedding march, dum dum, oh, no, you're here already. And the bride was like right there. And I thought, you know, to have, to have a true bridal march you have to start in the parking lot and so with this one you won't with this one it's going to be longer for for having weddings and yet it's not so big you're going to feel lost in the room it's going to be an intimate environment to house funerals and traditional worship and other gatherings for us as a church it, it's starting to take shape and it's exciting to see and then uh, on the other end of campus you'll see here uh, this is our new youth center that's going up it's kind of an L-shaped building that's going to be two stories. It's going to house Club 5-6 and then house the junior high. And it's going to be a place where a lot of spiritual decisions are going to be made for years to come because that's what youth do. And I can't wait to see how God uses this building that also, again, is starting to take shape. And for any of you who have ever been through a construction project, whether it be with a church or with your home or maybe even with your business, your physical business, you know that this is how the process works. You do a lot of planning. You draw up architectural plans and you start to deal with infrastructure issue and city approvals and in our case, people giving generously and talking about what the project costs. And eventually you start laying foundations and then after all that pre-work, what happens is, is that the building starts to go up and it starts to take shape and you start to get excited and anticipatory on what it's going to be like and how you're going to use it and for our purposes how we see God enter into the process. And if you can understand this, this idea of a lot of pre-work and foundation building before you finally erect your structure, then you can understand where we're at right now in our winter series here at Scottsdale Bible as we're studying the book of Nehemiah. Because if you're visiting with us today for the first time, or if you just need a refresher, here's what's happened in this book so far. We're about halfway through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and it's not a difficult topic to understand. Israel's been in exile. For 140 years, they've been banished from their homeland, from their temple, from even in many ways God himself. 
Uh, but about 50,000 Jews have now returned to Israel under the Persians, and they're rebuilding their sacred city, Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah, they've been rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, but we've noted every week that it's not just about erecting walls and gates, but it's about them preparing for revival. They're trying to get a second wind with this God that they have been separated from. And so we've noted that the first six chapters of Nehemiah have all been about prep work. It's been about trying to do some things, posture their lives, so that they can prepare themselves to begin walking with God again. So we've taken a look at topics like prayer, learning to pray once again. Uh, topics like seeing the good hand of God in your circumstances. Topics like what it means to bind together as a community of faith. Topics like what it means to be generous and forgiving. How to overcome obstacles. Even topics of how to live wisely in your life. All themes, now try to see it this way, that are about laying the infrastructure, laying the foundation for your life to receive a second wind from God to be revived. But now as we turn the pages into chapters 7 and 8 to the second half of this book, I'm telling you, things start to take off. Just like a facility that you now start to see the buildings take shape, now as we turn into the second half of this book, we're going to see their second wind start to come and revival starts to hit the nation Israel. They've laid the groundwork through the things that we've been talking about, and hopefully we're laying our own groundwork. And now they're about ready to inject five core ingredients into the believing community that are going to give them revival. And you're wondering, what are those five things? But we're going to talk about it over the next five Sundays. Actually, it'll take us six or seven Sundays. But we're going to do five things between now and Palm Sunday that can be, that can be the turning point for our revival before God. And you don't have to write this down, but here are those five things that Nehemiah is going to reveal to us. And, the, and those are truth, brokenness, commitment, joy, and holiness. The building blocks of revival. Truth, brokenness, we're going to talk about that one next week, commitment, joy, and, and holiness. And we're going to spend the next month and a half here at our church taking a look one week at a time at each of those five things and how they can affect our lives today before Almighty God. So let's spend this week on the first one. And let's say it in sentence form, and it's our main point this morning, and it's this, that rightly understood and rightly applied biblical truth is essential to getting a second wind with God. It's essential to walking with Him. That rightly understood and rightly applied biblical truth is core to you and me having revival before God. Now, let's go back to Nehemiah here for a second here. Uh, we're going to pretty much jump right from chapter 6, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, to chapter 8 this morning to get to this first core ingredient. And some of you are feeling ripped off already. You don't need to. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because you can read chapter 7 on your own, and it's a long, laborious chapter. Uh, chapter 7 is what we call a genealogical chapter. It's a chapter that after the first few verses that simply tell us they were guarding the city, it lists all the families and clans of the returning exiles, about 50,000 people, and it lists how many people are in each clan. And it's a very long chapter doing that. And so it's, very, it's a very important chapter for historical purposes because it shows us that this is real stuff with real people, real names, and about 50,000 returning Jews not so important for second wind purposes. Or maybe it is. 
Because, see, here's what I read in chapter 7 that propels us into chapter 8. Chapter 7 is basically communicating this to you and me. Ready, set, go. They're guarding the gates. They're ready. They've identified 50,000 people who need a second wind. They are set. And they are ready to now go and run with God in such a way that they have never done since the days of Moses. We're going to see that in chapter 8. And so basically chapter 7 is giving us some some historical background to get us ready, set, and go into chapter 8 and these five core ingredients. And sure enough, when we turn the page into chapter 8, we notice a very clear and powerful event that occurs. That's a moment in time for the nation of Israel. And that is that Ezra and Nehemiah, now don't miss this, bring the book of the law of Moses. What's that? The Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. They were scrolls back then. They bring these five scrolls that contain the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of the law of Moses. And they bring this book containing God's truth back into the believing community. The same community that has been separated from God, exiled for 140 years, that saw their temple destroyed, their houses taken away, the walls torn down. Now that a lot of that is built, they're ready to bring this book, this truth, back into the believing community. And you can picture the whole scene in your mind's eye. It says they assembled all the people in in the town square by the water gate, which we know is south of the temple there. Again, about 50,000 people assembled. And Ezra, a solid and godly Old Testament priest, brings out the scrolls before all who could understand, which means kids and adults who are ready to hear the word. And it simply says in verse 3 that he read the Bible aloud from sun up until noon. Now pause there, folks. I would submit to you that's an awfully long worship service. I mean, some of you whine when I go a few minutes over. Uh, Some of you don't like to stand when Troy has a stand for maybe three whole entire songs. This community was standing for the reading of God's word for six hours. That's what sunup was from about 6 a.m. till noon. I mean, you guys got it made compared to them back then. And standing on a wooden platform that was uniquely made for open-air preaching with six godly men on his right, seven godly men on his left, Ezra opens the book in the sight of the people and reads for them God's truth. He even makes makes mention in verse 3 that the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Is that not so cool? As you would be if somebody separated you from God's truth for decades on end. And all of a sudden now you had an opportunity to hear it once again. These people were thirsty For God's truth. They wanted to hear what God had to say. They wanted to fill their rebuilt city with God's will and direction for their lives. And they were willing to stand for hours to accomplish this. I I love it. It even says there were a lot of amens being said. Did you catch that there? Which I know is hard for an upper middle class white church to grab onto. Uh, But the reality is, is that Christians for thousands of years now, in response to something that their souls resonated with, would say... Amen. We need to do that more often around here. It even says some of them are raising their hands in worship. So I guess they had charismatics and Pentecostals back then. And as they're raising their hands in worship, some of them felt so humbled, and we'll talk about the brokenness next week, that they even bowed their head. It was a moment in time 
for the nation Israel as God's truth permeated their community once again. But it doesn't stop there. They're just ramping up. Then in verses 7 through 8, it tells us that what happened next is that they pretty much broke up into a bunch of makeshift Bible studies as 13 other trusted and godly men, and this is a quote, helped the people understand the law as they taught and interpreted the Old Testament law for them. Now look at verse 8, cactus and venue. Look at verse 8. This is very important. It says that these guys, and I quote, read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, now what's that about? Uh, that word clearly there is the Hebrew word moporas, which literally means to translate, to break apart. It, it carries with the idea that you have something that seems kind of complicated, so you, complicated, so you break it down into bite-sized chunks and then deliver it up to the people so that they might be able to digest it in smaller portions. Wow. So they were taking the law and breaking it up into parts so the people could understand it and then delivering it up for them. And then it says that they, that they gave good sense to the Bible. They gave the sense. This is the Hebrew word sekel that means insight, understanding, or good sense. Interesting word. It's used in the Proverbs over and over again to denote the fact that the Bible needs to be applied and lived out, that wisdom needs to be applied and lived out, that we need to do something with, that we need to make good sense of it. And so they were helping the people apply the scriptures as well. You see, this is why Christians now for 2,000 years and even Judaism has what we call teachers of the Bible. I mean, we all know that it's easy to make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Have you ever noticed that about people? There's entire pseudo-Christian denominations that are built upon what we call false teaching. You, you can take this book and you can make it say anything you want to. And so part of the trick, part of what God has, has ordained is that there would be certain men and women who had been gifted and have studied the word, either through a formal seminary education or other means, and we trust them because they've proven themselves over years. There's even character qualifications for being a teacher of God's word. And they conscientiously study the Bible in a balanced way to help people understand rightly and apply rightly what God has said. And one of the cool things is that this doesn't mean that we all agree on every interpretation. What it simply means is that what we agree on is that this is God's truth that it's given to us from him and that we need to understand it rightly and apply it rightly if we're ever going to experience revival. And sure enough, over the last 2,000 years, or at least mainly since the Protestant Reformation, evangelical Christians have generally agreed on all the big things. The resurrection, the atonement, the inerrancy of Scripture, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even the fact that Jesus is going to come back. We might disagree on smaller things, like modes of baptism uh, and, 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 and certain leadership issues and pre-trib or post-trib, sorry Trudy, things like that. We might disagree on smaller things, but the reality is, is that we agree on the big things. Why? Because we rally around the same book and we also understand that this book needs to be taught and rightly understood. And when we do this, when, when we do what happens here in Nehemiah 8, in our day and age, in our context, God uses this bringing of truth into the community of faith to give us a second wind. Don't miss this, guys. 
This is the whole point of this chapter, to show us that when you and I place ourselves under the authority of God's truth, as contained in his word, spiritual sparks fly. Because we understand him rightly, we understand this world rightly, and we align ourselves with God with who he is. And already having laid the foundation now of all the other things in the first six chapters, like prayer and grace and community and wisdom, now you inject the word, truth, into all of that, and look out, a second wind begins to flow. And though we don't have time to go into this in great detail this morning, you look closely at the second half of chapter 8, and that's exactly what you see happen. Because built upon this idea of bringing the word back into the believing community, two things happened that they weren't ready for. The first one is that God gave them joy. You notice that? God gave them joy. Actually, first they started to mourn and weep. Uh, Bill read it for us earlier, but they're mourning and weeping, and we're going to talk about that next week because they had brokenness. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah and Ezra step in to say, hey, guys, Chill out. You don't get it. <laughs> There's going to be some time for confessing of sin, but not now. The word is designed to give you joy. God's bringing his truth back into his community, and it's something solid and something good. So let's rejoice. And, and then look what happens then in verses 10 and 12. It says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink and sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. Here it is. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Now, don't miss this. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So when the word was brought back into the believing community, it gave joy. You see, that's the way it works. But when you and I understand God's will for our lives, we understand what he has said, as we're going to see in a minute, even some of the hard things that God says, as we hang in there with him, as we wrestle with his truth, as we apply it to our lives, it is bound to give us joy. And joy is all about a second wind. And then notice that it gave them unity. You're saying, where is this? Look at verse 17. It says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. Now we need to wrestle with this for a second. It's talking about the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, or otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles, was one of the great, is one of the great Jewish feasts. It happens on the 15th day of a particular month. And you can see a picture here of a modern day booth. What Jews do today, and what they did back then, is that they make booths in their backyard out of the materials talked about here in Nehemiah and then also in Leviticus. And these booths have a powerful symbolism to them. They symbolize the huts that the Israelites had to live in during the 40 days of or 40 years of wandering in the desert with Moses when God took care of them and provided for them. And so they remember God's faithfulness to them during the 40 years of wandering in the desert. And they make booths and they live in them for seven days and even eat in them. You can see that in the picture there. And so what they do is now that they understand this in Nehemiah's day, they, they celebrate the Feast of the Booths. Now, why do we have to wrestle with that? If you notice there, it says in verse 17 that, that they hadn't done this since the days of Joshua. This is one of those passages that critics of the Bible will point to and say, see, the Bible has errors in it. Because it tells us in Ezra chapter 3 verse 4 
that they had celebrated the Feast of, the, of Booths years before that, like 80 or 90 years when Ezra first came back to Israel. So, so how could Ezra say we celebrated the Feast of the Booths and then Nehemiah say it hasn't been celebrated since Joshua? Some people say, see, the Bible contradicts itself, but not so fast. The way you and I interpret the Bible is through what we call an historical grammatical hermeneutic, which is simply fancy language for saying that we study the Bible in its historical context with authorial intent, meaning the intent of the author, using laws of grammar and logic to understand what the author is saying. When I study the Bible and deliver it up to you guys, I am bound voluntarily by that hermeneutic. That's how I study it. So therefore, I don't read my own junk into it. I draw out what God has said through the scriptural, through the Bible's authors. Could it be what most scholars point out that what Nehemiah is doing here is using a grammatical technique to essentially say this? He's not saying that they had never celebrated the Feast of Booths since Joshua, because that would be insane. That's centuries ago. He's saying they have never celebrated the Feast of Booths with such such enthusiasm and passion and unity since the days of Joshua. He's using a literary device here to basically imply and say, we have not had this kind of celebration with so much unity and enthusiasm since the days that they first started celebrating the Feast of Booths. And sure enough, he says, and there was very great rejoicing. And, and, and so again, we see there's an incredible amount of unity and enthusiasm contained here in the scriptures. Folks, never understand this. Rightly understood and rightly applied biblical truth is essential to you and I getting a second wind. At the very least, it gives us joy. It gives us unity. The Bible is that important. And it's why Jews and Christians have clung to this book for thousands of years now. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking right now. You're saying, okay, Jamie, I get it. I've been a Christian for years. You're telling me the Bible is the word of God, that it's very important to our faith, and, and I get that. I mean, tell me something I don't know. I think this is actually more of an important issue in today's world than most of us realize. Because here's what's going on in our world today that should make you much more attuned to this issue than many of you are. You and I have seen something happen in our culture that 40 or 50 years ago we didn't see coming and we didn't know would come. You and I live in a culture today, and you know this now, that has become increasingly numb, if not antagonistic, to this idea of divine transcendent truth. But we have seen before our very eyes culture change that at one time had categories that would allow us to explain and understand divine transcendent truth, biblical truth, that now has all but completely rejected those categories. And, and I think it's affected the church, you and me. I'll show you in a minute here how more than we could ever imagine. First, let me explain the issue. Now, when I was born in 1964, I turned 50 this year, uh, we were living in what demographers and social scientists would call a modern world. You've heard that phrase before, a modern world. Uh, what a modern world was is a world that came off the Enlightenment, which was called the Age of Reason, and then the Industrial Revolution that invented a lot of things, and then the Technological Revolution that also invented a lot of things. And coming off of the Enlightenment and these revolutions, the modern world was invented. 
And the modern world, far beyond just having electricity and planes, trains, and automobiles and things like that, the modern world really was a world of vast scientific and philosophical discovery. And the reason is, is because we elevated reason to a very high level, and, and the Enlightenment was a profound positive effect on our understanding of the world and things around us. And during the Enlightenment, however, we also kept this idea of divine transcendent truth, what we call revelation, also at a very high level. So many of the Enlightenment thinkers, though they elevated reason to a high level, also had a lot of room for the fact that reason can only take you so far that we also need a lot of help from the outside, from God, and that God, who knows all, has given us divine transcendent truth, and it's found in the Bible. And the world that I was born into in 1964 was still a modern world that was friendly to a lot of this idea. But starting around the mid-1960s, I'm telling you, hippies changed everything. Starting around the mid-1960s, we ushered in a new way of thinking that you also have heard about now called postmodernism. And basically what postmodernism did was reject all the foundations of modernism. Postmodernism said we've had World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, AIDS, and a lot of mess in this world, so don't tell us that reason and revelation can change things. And they rejected the categories of reason and even the categories of divine, absolute, transcendent truth in lieu of what we call personal truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Let's just be at peace with all of that, and let's just be okay with that. And that's the prevalent mood right now in much of academia and that's how culture has changed before our very eyes we live in a culture today that has rejected the idea of truth as an absolute entity that has any transcendence mean, meaning that it's outside of us and comes from a transcendent God and here's what adds even more insult to injury during the whole time that all of this was happening baby boomers who were ruling culture, many of you and I, were flocking to churches saying that we believe the Bible is the word of God, but we weren't representing it as so in the culture around us. And so at the same time that many of us were embracing the Bible, we were watching our culture slip into a postmodern mindset, and now we're paying a huge price for that in the culture around us. So though you and I sit here in church today and many of us might say, well, yeah, yeah, the Bible is my truth source. We're going to walk out of here in, in, in a few minutes and we're going to walk into a world that thinks we're absolutely crazy. And I'm telling you, it wasn't that way 50 years ago. It is that way now. Let me show you. Look up here on the screen. Here's a map. Enough of this booth. Here's a map here. And, and, and this is a map that shows a recent study that I think is one of the more profound studies that's happened in our nation on a spiritual level in a while. It's done by the American Bible Society, along with Barna and his group. And for seven years, they interviewed 42,000 people in 100 different cities across the United States. And as they did this study of 42,000 people in 100 cities, they asked these people two primary questions. They asked them, have you read the Bible in the last seven days, yes or no? And then they secondly asked them, even if you haven't read the Bible, do you believe or strongly agree with this, this statement? The Bible is accurate in what it says about God and life. So they wanted to find out what people think of the Bible. Based upon the results of this study, the seven-year study, they've come up with 
in the hundred cities in America and those that are the most Bible-friendly and those that are the least Bible-friendly. The ones in the blue are the top five most Bible-friendly cities in the United States. The ones in the red are the least friendly. And when you look at it initially, it makes sense because the blue is in an area of our nation that we call the Bible Belt, right? I mean, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lynchburg, Virginia, Shreveport, Louisiana, Birmingham, Alabama. If you want to go to a Bible-friendly part of our country, move there. The red are the least Bible-friendly parts of our country, and it doesn't surprise us as well because three out of the five are in the east, Boston, Massachusetts, Albany, New York, and then Providence, Rhode Island. Some of you from the east get that. And then there's only one city way in the far west there. There's actually two I'll talk about in a minute, San Francisco, and that shouldn't surprise us as well at all. Cedar Rapids actually surprised me a little bit there, but, but let me explain. You're saying, where's Phoenix on this? Phoenix actually rated number 93. Phoenix was 93 on the very, very high end of being one of the least Bible-friendly cities in America, and it's actually worse than that because there was a tie between numbers 93, 94, 95, and 96 Cedar Rapids, and so we're actually tied for fifth position as a, I'm sorry, for, yeah, for fifth position as a city. But we are one of the least Bible-friendly cities in the United States, which again should not surprise us. I've been telling you guys since I moved here that only about 13% of Scottsdale goes to church, that though this is a wonderful place to live, that no pun intended, when it comes to the Bible, we're as dry as the desert around us as a culture here in Phoenix. As I've been sharing this with some of my friends over the last month, knowing that I was going to share it with you today, the response people have had is, is typical. They basically responded like this, well, that's awful. What a dismal city we live in. How could this be? And they're kind of incredulous and all that. I knew some Christians would respond that way, but i got to tell you folks right now, I don't see it that way at all. I really don't. I think we have an amazing opportunity based on this study here in our city. And let me show you why. When truth appears in an environment where it's already believed, it looks like this. In other words, when truth appears on a white background, in a background that's already received it, it's a good thing. It just kind of saturates into the environment. And one of the dangers is, is that over time you can start to say, yeah, 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 I know that. And like you're telling God, yeah, 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 I know your divine transcendent truth given to me. And you can become kind of placid about it. That's what happens many times in the Bible Belt. But you see, the opportunity you and I have here is to see and place truth on a dark background. And here's what truth looks like when it is on a dark background. It's much more prominent. It stands out a lot more. Truth, when it hits dark places, shines a light. And those we're going to see in a minute, an unbelieving world doesn't stand up and applaud. They actually will get a little bit uncomfortable with the truth. At the very least, you know the truth is making a dent in the world around you because of the blackness of the culture around you. Some of you are saying, well, is that biblical? It is. Jesus was called the truth. And look at what John said of Jesus in John 1 verse 5. It, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, there's our biblical proof. 
that, that, that this is what happens when truth hits a dark world. It shines. And don't you love it? Here's why God encourages you when it comes to his truth. It cannot be extinguished. That's why he said that when you and I as the church are carriers of his truth, you remember this scripture, the kingdom of hell will not prevail against it. So we feel beat up at times. We feel like we're losing the battle, if you will, when it comes to our culture. Chill out. The reality is, is that when things get dark in the culture around us, what God says is that my truth shines brighter. I guess I believe this so much that I've been avoiding the Bible Belt all of my pastoral life. I really have. I mean, I know some people need to be called there, and, and, and I have pastor friends there, but we all have unique callings. And, and, and anytime I said to God, okay, God, I'm open to a move, I've also kind of breathed. I know you can't tell God things like this, but he understands. I've said, just don't send me to the Bible Belt. Because I'm not sure I could take it. I'm not sure I can take all these people who think they know everything. And, and there's all, you know, don't even get me going. I don't want to say it publicly. But anyways, <laughs> when I came here, I said to Kim, I didn't know. I, I really am a dope at times. I didn't know anything about Phoenix when I came here. And, and so when I first got asked to be considered putting my name in the ring with the search team, I said to Kim, I don't want to go to Phoenix. That's in the Bible Belt. That's my Bible Belt to She said, no, it's not. And I said, yes, it is. It's like right near Texas. And I said, Texas is in the Bible Belt. She said, look on a map. They're like really far from Texas. It's like two states away and there's a lot of land. I'm telling you, it's not a bi in the Bible Belt. So I actually typed Bible Belt map into my Google thing. And sure enough, she was right again that it wasn't in, 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 in there. And so I was open to coming here. Why? Because I think truth shines in dark places. And I'd rather be where the action is when it comes to truth than where it's not. I think that our greatest opportunity is right now as a church to live out and show what truth looks like against a dark and even opposing background. Now, what's it going to take for you and I to do this? Here's where it's going to get hard for some of you. As I thought about you guys this week and Cactus and Venue use, well, there's two things we've got to do if we're going to get any traction out of this reality that truth can revive. Here's the first thing. We need to stop being embarrassed by what the Bible says. Some of you are going, I'm not embarrassed. I see this a lot in Christians. I, I, let me try to explain this very, very clear because I don't want to be misunderstood here. There are things the Bible says that are very hard to understand. There are things the Bible says that are hard to meld with a modern and now even postmodern world. You're saying like what? Jonah being swallowed by a whale. All the miracles in the Bible. Demon possession. What the Bible says about the differences between men and women. What the Bible says about God's sovereignty and our will. Even what the Bible says about other religions that aren't either Jewish or Christian, the Bible says they're essentially man-made. The Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God. It, these are all things, I'm telling you, I've been studying it for years. I got an earned master's degree in divinity. These are things that the Bible clearly and inarguably says. Jesus said these things. And we read them today, and we're a sophisticated, educated group of people, and there are times where instead of wrestling through the implications of these things, because there really are answers to most of these things that can help us understand them in a balanced and right way, instead of doing that, we just kind of get embarrassed and we shrink back. I mean, Christians today, some have problems with the very first sentence in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? What's the very first sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, God 
created. Well, that's creationism, and we had a naturalism and evolution, and da da da. I, I get it. I get it. I'm not a dope in this area. I, I mean, I, I, I've been studying the Bible for years. Uh, my, my dad is a Darwinian evolutionist. Believe me, I was raised in a family like that. I get it. I understand the differences, and I understand the complexity of it. We don't need to be ostriches who bury our heads in the sand. I mean, there's lots of issues to wrestle with when it comes to the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. We have to talk about processes and microevolution and macroevolution and change within species and change among species. And, and there's been times where the church has been very, very sad in their very bad in their approach to this. I mean, look at Galileo or Copernicus and, and their defense of how the world is and how the Catholic Church at that time responded. They even excommunicated Galileo. I mean, there's some embarrassing blights. I get it. But there's one thing. It's one thing to say I'm wrestling with a particular issue that the Scripture says. And it's another thing to say I'm embarrassed about it and I'm going to avoid it. See, and that's the difference. So let's wrestle. That's one thing I love about our church. We got, we got Sunday school classes that wrestle with these issues. And we even disagree on some of the fineries of them. That's okay. But, but don't be embarrassed about them at all. Because the reality is, is that God's word and his truth is life to our souls. There's another issue there, and I, I don't want to touch this one, but I'm telling you, it's becoming more and more prominent. It's not just the first chapter of the Bible people have problems with. You ever read the second chapter? Because in the second chapter, it says that, that, that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But you see, we're living in a culture today that, that's trying to redefine marriage. And it's very, very complicated. I'll tell you why. Be, because Christians, during the culture wars, didn't always respond very lovingly to the gay community. We didn't. I, I was never more embarrassed back in the 90s when Ellen DeGeneres came out and said that she was gay and a prominent Christian leader called her Ellen DeGeneres. And I remember thinking to myself, because the newspapers picked that up, I thought, that's a very, very sad thing that he would do that. Same Christian leader said that God didn't create Adam and, Eve, Adam and Steve, he created Adam and Eve. And I thought, boy, that's not a way to posture ourselves in this debate. And, and Christians ha have at times been very unloving and very unkind to the gay community and, and partly we're paying the price for that now because the media is all over us on that one and, 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 and the media is having a field day with this and the gay community is very strong. And, and, and so I see some Christians basically shrinking back from this issue and saying, well, maybe it's not such a big deal and, you know, we really shouldn't. Be. They're kind of embarrassed by what the Bible says. But I don't think the answer is to shrink back no, no, don't miss this. I think the answer is to get more loving, to get more caring, to get more dialogical. Remember what God says in Isaiah chapter, chapter 1? He says to Israel, come, let us reason together. I, th I think the answer is to sit down and reason with people and say, I'm not trying to rain on your parade, but, but if this book is true and we believe it is, then what God says about marriage at the end of the day is best for us. It's best for us as a culture, and it's best for you as an individual. And again, I know it's complex. There's a lot of issues going on here. But again, it's one thing to wrestle with the implications of what the Bible clearly says. It's another thing to be embarrassed about an issue and avoid it altogether. I, I could go on and on. There's so many issues that we're doing that with today. And, and guys, I'm telling you, it doesn't help our culture. 
I mean, all of us have children, most of us do. And, and you know, when our children were growing up and we were trying to teach them right from wrong and, and, and they didn't understand why we might be so dogmatic on certain things are right and certain things are wrong, we didn't shrink back and sit there and say, well, gee, you know, I, you don't approve of me as a parent, so I guess I, I, I guess I won't do that anymore. Of course we didn't do that. We persevered through that because we believed that what we were teaching them is a good thing and it's a loving thing. And you and I have been given divine, transcendent truth from God, truth that can revive our very souls. And we have a culture around us that doesn't understand. And if we love them at all, we're going to hang in with them and help them understand God's word and his truth with patience, with tenderness, with care, but with conviction, not fudging an ounce on it. That's what God's people do. And then there's a second thing we need to do if we're going to get any traction with this. If you thought the first one was hard, this is going to be even harder for some of you. Not only do not need to be embarrassed by what the Bible says, but we need to stop questioning its authority in our lives. And you're saying, well, Christians do that. I see it happen all the time. I, I mean, I, I just see Christians all the time come to parts of the Bible they don't like. And, and, and instead of humbly saying, I just don't like it and I'm having trouble living it, they basically say to me, well, I just think I'm not going to live that thing. I, I just don't like it at all. I, I, I mean, I, I just, I, what, what right does the Bible have to say that about me? You're saying, really, Christians do that? Think about sexual purity. I declared in my last church at one point, it was really kind of a moment in time, I said, I said that if you come to me to get married, I am going to ask you if you're sleeping together before marriage. Boy, did that ever cut down on the number of weddings that I did. I mean, it was like the well just ran dry with that one. But I do. I ask couples if they're doing that because the Bible says, Hebrews 13 says, keep the marriage bed pure. 1 Corinthians 7 says that if you're, if you're burning with passion, then just call it what it is and get married. But, but don't live in that tension. The Bible's very clear on that one. But 80% of couples today are sleeping together before they get married. Even baby boomers are doing it now in their second marriages. And it's not right. And when I call people on it, you know what happens? It'd be one thing if they all said to me, I know, Pastor, I know it's dead wrong, and thanks for calling me on it. I'll repent, and we'll make this right, and we'll have a pure wedding day someday. We commit to purity from this day on. Rarely does somebody ever say that. You know what they say to me? They, they, they say the most pathetic thing I, I think I've ever heard Christians say. They'll say, how could something that feels so good be so wrong? I go, really? That's your best shot at questioning the Bible's authority? I go, let me answer that first. How can something that feels so good be so wrong? You know, in my early days, I struggled a lot with rage. I'd get angry, I'd rage on somebody, and I'd rage and it would feel good. Was that right or wrong? Wrong. I'm told that heroin feels good. I've never tried it, but, I, but I'm told it makes you feel good. There's certain other drugs as well, but they're wrong. I mean, I got lots of examples in life of things that feel good that are wrong. So could it be there are certain things in the Bible that God says don't do, and even though they might feel good to do them, they are wrong. So that's a pathetic excuse, if there ever was one. So then people say to me, what's God's logic about not sleeping together for marriage? It's for another sermon, but here's my point to them. Even if there isn't any logic, and there is, but even if there isn't any logic, isn't it enough that he commanded it? I mean, didn't your kids drive you nuts long enough in the early days when, they, when you'd say, you know, you can't have a Mars bar before dinner, and they'd say, why? Well, it's not good for you. Why? Well, you see, there's plenty of nutrition. Why? Finally, what you say to your kid, shut up. You're not getting a Mars bar before dinner. <laughs> you just play the authority card, and you were right for doing it, by the way. Probably not right telling your kid to shut up, but, but I mean, it was right to do that. See, God says the same thing to us. 
He, he says, stop questioning my authority. Just live it. It's tax time right now. Many of you are going to whine on taxes. You're going to be tempted to cheat on them because you're not going to put yourself under the Bible's authority. That when Jesus asked about taxes, he pulled out a coin and he said, whose picture is on this? Oh, it's George Washington. Give it back to him. That's what Jesus, Caesar, but he said, give it back to Caesar. See, we don't like that. We, we whine and complain about taxes, but see, there's things in the Bible. I told you, you're not going to like this message. There's things in the Bible that, that we don't like that are hard to live. But, but here's the point behind this. If we're going to tell an unbelieving world around us that there is such thing as divine transcendent truth and that this truth can set them free, and yet we live lives that are not commensurate with the truth, then how, that's why we're called hypocrites. And again, don't hear me. I'm not saying that you have to live it perfectly. I'm at full liberty when I'm dealing with a seeker and they say to me, well, you know, you don't live a perfect life. I'll say, no, I don't. And you know what? I'm going to admit, we're going to talk about this next week. I admit I'm broken, I'm fallen, and there are times I fall short. But that's different than questioning the Bible's authority. That's different from being embarrassed by what it says. So forever today, let you and I put that up behind us. One of the things I love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we are a Bible teaching church. When people ask me to describe our church to them because we're not part of a denomination, I'll say, well, I'd like to think of us as a grace-filled Bible teaching church. That's what we are. And what we're seeing today is that that idea is key to revival. So let's all live this out. Let's live out the truth that God has given us. Let's show an unbelieving world that God loves them, that he cares for them, that he longs to be in personal relationship with them, and that he has even given his word and truth to them. Let's be carriers of that truth. Let's live it out before people. It's going to revive us, and it will also revive them. We're going to go to the communion table. Our servers are going to come forward now. Cactus and Venue are going to have their communion. As we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us and for the fact that, that in this book of Nehemiah, you're showing us the core ingredients of revival. And God, it all begins with truth. It begins with the idea that your truth has permeated our lives and we need not be embarrassed nor shrink back from it. So help us to do that, God. Maybe this is a turning point for some of us here today to align ourselves more fully with your word and its authority in our lives. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.